welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the queen of crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I'm Catherine Broback. I'm Kemper Donovan. And this week we are returning once again to our beloved Hercule Poirot and the uh, labors of Hercules, which we've been covering these past short story episodes. And we have another uh, two this week. So, um, Kemper, why don't you start us off with our first? All right. We are beginning with the Stymphalian Birds which was first published in the U.S. in September of 1939 in The Week magazine under the title The Vulture Women. And then it was published in the U.K. in April 1940 in The Strand. And then, of course, it was uh, collected in the Labors of Hercules collection by Dodd Mead in the U.S. in 1947 and later that same year in the U.K. by our beloved Collins Crime Club. Catherine Brobeck, who was the victim in the Stymphalian Birds? I mean, I will tell you the victim, Kemper, but first, wouldn't you like to tell us a little bit about those Stymphalian Birds? Oh my gosh, Catherine, I, you're so right. I almost forgot I mean, you know, that it's story time. I, just, I know that sometimes people think that I'm poking a little bit of fun at you, that it's a little bit in jest, but <laughs> I love Never. I love our story time, Kemper, and I would not deprive our listeners of it. Gather ye round for a little story about a man named Hercules. So in my copy of the Dolaire's Book of Greek Myths, this is coming in right after the uh, Aramanthian boar, actually. Then Eurystheus sent Heracles to rid the Stymphalian lake of a swarm of dangerous birds. They had feathers of brass so sharp that when one of them fell to the ground, it killed whomever it hit. But they could not penetrate Heracles' lion skin, and he made such a din with a huge rattle that the birds took fright and flew away, never to return. He was using that Nemean lion skin, just as Hercule Poirot builds his knowledge base or his mind palace, if you will from case to case, exercising those little gray cells. One could say that. (laughs) (laughs) One could draw that metaphor, uh, especially since Christy does often go to interesting metaphorical places. In uh, these stories, this one is actually not quite as metaphorical, actually, as some of the others. We have uh, some bird-like humans actually in this story. This is one that I really remember from when I read it the first time as a kid of around 12 or so. I just, I remember the image of these bird-like sisters. Right. I'm getting ahead of myself, Catherine. Uh, Tell us about the victim, if you please, in The Stymphalian Birds by Agatha Christie. His name is Harold Waring. He is an undersecretary of state for Britain. He's, you know, 30. He's nice enough looking. Uh, he's on holiday in Herza, Slovakia. We've seen Herza, Slovakia before. I mean, I have to tell you, like, I got so excited when I saw that this entire story is set in Herza, Slovakia, because I just said that I did remember the story, but I did not remember the setting because it now means so much to me as a devotee, a deep diving devotee of Christie. Right. She's been referencing Herza, Slovakia since the 20s. And to get this shout out here decades later to, you know, what she was riffing on in, in The Secret of Chimneys, we actually just covered recently Spider's Web her original play that she wrote uh, in the 50s. She she made a throwaway reference to Herzoslovakia in that one as well. She's often having fun when uh, when we see this made-up country. 
in her text. Right. And hopefully no one is too offended by this made-up Mitteleuropa country. (laughs) Um, Yeah, a vaguely Yugoslavian, right? (laughs) I mean, I always assume that it's like Czechoslovakia. Don't you think? Yeah, I think I have in my head Bosnia Herzegovina. There seems always to be like a Prague tinge to it. So, no, yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, the denizens of Herzegovina are of Slavic origin, I would say. Their language is a Slav language. So, yeah, you know, in and around that kind of Central Europe area. Right. And uh, anyway, Harold Waring is drawn into the drama of this young woman and her mother at the hotel that he's on holiday at. And, you know, he has a bit of a crush on the young woman. Uh oh. <laughs> yeah, n- not great. That can sometimes be a problem. It leaves one vulnerable, shall we say? Yeah, so, who are the suspects? All right, let's talk about our suspects. Well, first up, we've got two sharp looking Polish sisters, fingers like talons, noses like beaks, and they seem to be trailing Harold wherever he goes, and he becomes convinced that they are harbingers of danger or omens of some sort of terrible fate. So, these would, of course, be our titular Stymphalian birds. And again, not so metaphorical. I mean, they are bird like women. According to Harold Waring, that is. Right. And then we have Mrs. Elsie Clayton, who's a beautiful young Englishwoman who's traveling with her mother. Mrs. Rice, who's a dignified and very multilingual Englishwoman. And uh, that's about it. Yep. <laughs> we are in a short story here. All right. So let's talk about the world as it appears to be. Harold Waring is on holiday in Herzoslovakia, as we mentioned. And his only real companions in this hotel are Mrs. Clayton and Mrs. Rice because they speak English. And he pretty much only speaks English. I mean, he has some French, it seems, but he's having a real problem communicating with the people who work at the hotel and anyone else who's staying there. May or may not be an important point later on. I mean, I will note that part of the reason why I think that we're probably in Mittel Europe versus like Yugoslavia is that he becomes determined to learn German. Yeah, totally. But yes, go on. So Harold, dear Harold, has an understandable crush on Elsie Clayton, this beautiful young English woman traveling with her mother. And she is married. We we do learn that she's she's married, although at first Harold assumes that she's a widow. But eventually her mother, Mrs. Rice, corrects him and lets him know that Mr. Philip Clayton, Elsie's husband, is a drunken, abusive bully. And that Elsie is taking some time away from him, and it, and it seems perhaps trying to figure out the best way out of what seems to be a disastrous marriage. Right. So um, the two other guests at this hotel um, are the two previously mentioned um, older Polish women who turn out to be sisters. And he is really spooked by them. He like increasingly believes them to be some source of like latent evil. And... By the way, he's never spoken to them. He just thinks this to be the case. It's really xenophobic on his part, but it's um, also kind of prodded along by Mrs. Rice, I think, because Mrs. Rice is the one who finds out that they're Polish sisters. Yes. Mrs. Rice keeps this little inner circle of three quite tight, but so does Harold. Mm -hmm. So they're kind of simpatico on that front for now. And then as for Elsie, well, eventually a distraught Elsie cries to Harold at breakfast that her husband Philip has shown up at the hotel and she's afraid of him. 
And one night Elsie comes to his room to talk to him. Uh, you know, again, she just seems terrified and frightened out of her wits only to be chased down the hall into her own room by an enraged Philip. Already, you know, we're getting the sense that Harold is kind of skating on thin ice here. I mean, this woman has been in his bedroom. Now he's pursuing this married couple and kind of sticking his nose into this domestic spat. Elsie tries to lock the door, but Philip gets into the bedroom. And by that time, you know, Harold does get the door open. So he opens the bedroom door of this married couple and he sees Elsie cornered against the window. And it seems that her husband, Philip, is trying to kill her. Elsie flings a paperweight at his head and he drops and she tells Harold to just go and pretend like he was never there and and basically just try to extricate himself from this mess. Oh boy. Oh boy. That's one kind of holiday, I suppose, Kemper. (laughs) So Mrs. Rice, a few hours later, shows up at Harold's room telling him that not only is Philip not okay, Philip is dead. And that their only option is probably going to have to be to figure out a way with local authorities. You know, Harold kind of suggests maybe we could just dump the body. (laughs) Which, (laughs) I mean, Harold, gosh, get your wits about you, man. But... um, Ah, yes, the aspiring politician. (laughs) I know, I know, just, oh dear. But he goes along with the bribery. That's essentially what Mrs. Rice does. And he overhears some of it. He overhears her talking to, you know, various people and authorities, etc. And, you know, money is wired and exchanged. And, you know, Mrs. Rice, again, she has real skill with uh, European languages. So this is a plus for them. And it's all fine and good until, oh no, what happens, Kemper? Well, those two Polish women, the bird-like harpies, uh, sit down and start conversing with Mrs. Rice. Of course, Harold has no idea what they're saying, but he's frightened to death of them. And Mrs. Rice, once they leave, sort of blanches, goes gray, you know, use whatever sort of color metaphor you want. She seems terrified as well. And um, she says that these two women live on the same floor of this hotel. They heard everything that went on. They are requiring payment as well. So it's not just the police in Herzegovina who have to be bribed. It is these two Stymphalian birds who are going to need Harold to pay up yet again, because he has also, by the way, been the source of the bribery money that was paid out to the Herzegovinian police. I mean, Mrs. Rice collected his money and, you know, said, I'll, I'll see what I can do, since, again, she was the only one who could speak with them. And, yeah, apparently he's going to have to pay up and do it again, and he's just feeling pretty hopeless about all of this when... And something quite exciting happens, doesn't it, Catherine? Yeah, he's despondent. He's sitting beside the lake, thinking about how he's going to spend the rest of his life giving payments to these two Polish sisters. And he perhaps sees a foreigner coming along the path towards him. This is, by the way, I'd, I just would like to point out the last four pages of a, again, as all of the short stories in this collection are, a rather lengthy I know. short story. A very lengthy short story. And this is the very end of it. You know, that foreigner, do you think he's Polish, Kemper? Do you think I he's. I don't think he's Polish. Do you think he's German? No. Do you think he's. I def- and I definitely don't think he's French. 
Is he perhaps Belgian? <gasps> Is it our dear Hercule Poirot? It may well be our dear Monsieur Poirot. He, in fact, has come to this same hotel and he comes across this despondent Harold and he sees him and he sees how upset he is and Harold because he's exhausted mentally and physically he just ends up pouring his heart out to Poirot and he just tells him everything even though that's probably really deeply inappropriate at this point. He tells him everything. He says these Polish women are clearly at fault and he's totally terrified. And Poirot says, you know what? Trust Papa Poirot. I will handle this for you. I think that that is usually wise advice to follow. Usually so. We are now, usually so. And uh, we are now at the portion of our story where we can turn to some clues here. And we've got two clues, actually. The first is an oldie, but a goodie, but with with an interesting little twist on it. And that is our old uh, eyewitness clue. You know, we can never take a single sense at face value clue. In Christy, mm-hmm. do you hear someone, but you can't see them? Well, if since we're in an Agatha Christie story, that means it's probably a dictaphone or someone throwing their voice or a ventriloquist or something like that, because such is the way of the world in a Christie story. We're just not supposed to trust anyone. We need to both, you know, see and hear a person. And here we have a key conversation taking place right in front of us in a foreign language, which is when those two Polish sisters come up to Mrs. Rice, blackmailing her. And really, we could even say the these conversations that have been happening between Mrs. Rice and the police as well. You know, Mrs. Rice tells Harold what is happening in the course of these conversations, but we as readers certainly never get any kind of objective information about the content of those conversations. So this is, I think, just like a really clever, devious spin on that trope because it's even trickier and harder to root out than when you hear a voice, but you don't necessarily see the person speaking. It's also like travel specific. Like this is what happens if you go abroad and you only speak English and a little bit of French and you're in the middle of Europe in a Czechoslovakia like country, people might take advantage of you because you don't know what is going on. So we should perhaps question what is uh, going on in those conversations. And if we are questioning that, then that means, of course, that Mrs. Rice is potentially a person that we should be thinking twice about. And then I'll just roll right on into the second clue as well, because quite honestly, this one just struck me (laughs) while we were summarizing the story. But early on, Mrs. Rice is described as tall. And I would also point out that even though Harold Waring does see this Mr. Philip Clayton when he rushes into, you know, his bedroom and then Harold follows Philip and Elsie to their bedroom in the hotel, you know, it's all very agitated and quick and he doesn't necessarily get a great look at him. It's not that there's bad lighting or a scarf covering his face or anything like that, but, you know, perhaps we should be a little suspect of who Mr. Philip Clayton is and just think twice about the fact that Christie goes out of her way in a short story to describe Mrs. Rice as tall. I just think that's interesting and um, maybe that will be significant. What do you think, Catherine? Oh, yeah, probably so, Kemper. So the world as it actually is. Again, Poirot only shows up at the very end of this. And so when he reappears the next day, he assures Harold that all is well and that the two women are in custody. 
And Harold is deeply relieved, you know, no longer having to fear these two Polish birds. And he turns his head only to see, who do you think he sees, Kemper? Well, he sees Mrs. Rice and Elsie Clayton in custody because they are the con artists here. They are the harpy-like duo (laughs) because there was no Philip. Philip Clayton was Mrs. Rice dressed up as a man. And there was no murder because all that Harold saw was Elsie throw this paperweight at Philip and then he supposedly fell and it was only reported after the fact that he died. But there was no murder. Philip, a.k.a. Mrs. Rice, was fine. There was also no bribery because, again, all those conversations were between Mrs. Rice and the police. Who knows what they were talking about? I think Poirot theorizes that maybe she claimed to have lost a brooch right. or something like that. Um, and then, of course, that key conversation between the two Polish sisters and Mrs. Rice, they were probably like talking about the weather <laughs> or, right. or you know, the sights because they actually are two nice older ladies from a good Polish family. which is what we are actually told about them in the beginning. And this is all because Harold Waring needs to learn some other languages. I know. If he's going to travel abroad and not rely on the kindness of strangers. I kind of love this because, you know, Christy is so constantly taken to task, and rightfully so, for the xenophobia that can sometimes appear in her stories. But in this case, she's really riffing on the notion of an insular Briton who is traveling abroad and, like, doesn't even know how to communicate with anyone. And he gets his comeuppance, right? And, like, the moral of the story is be a little bit more worldly. Learn a little bit more about the places you're visiting, including the languages that people are speaking. Pick up a couple of words and maybe you won't find yourself in this mess. Right. And, I mean, I think that I think that there could be a long conversation had about uh, similar misunderstandings about just, like, areas of expertise that one doesn't know anything about. Um, you know, we've seen it in various things about uh, science and, like, formulas. Mm-hmm. You know, we saw it in Black Coffee, right? Yep. And uh, we've seen it about finances, where somebody can't bother to read a spreadsheet or a, or, or a <laughs> yeah, ledger. Totally. And so, yep. as a result, because they are financially illiterate, something completely obvious just slips beneath the surface. And here we have the same thing, except it's, you know, with German or whatever. Right. No, it's true. It's a good point. And it's like, it's the same underlying principle, which is actually a very um, Marpelian principle and makes me think of Christie's own Auntie Granny who was the inspiration for Miss Marple because cynicism, right? Which underlies so much of, of what drives Miss Marple. And I remember, I believe it's in the autobiography. She talks about how her auntie granny was the kind of person who, if you said, Oh, well, you know, I, I didn't realize that it was this way because so-and-so told me that it was another way. And she would look at you kind of quizzically and be like, you believed them. Why? Why would you just so blindly follow someone else? Like this idea of like, you got to think for yourself and act for yourself or else, well, of course you're going to get hoodwinked because people are awful and you need to stand up for yourself. Right. You silly person. Right. You know, I love that. (laughs) No, I like it too. Um, Despite the fact that Poirot is only in it for a few pages, it's a neat little story. 
It is. And this is one case where I think the fact that it appears in a collection makes that aspect of it quite forgivable because there's almost a certain amount of tension in the story as you're reading it. And you're like, where's Poirot? Right. Because you know that he's going to come in. So it's kind of great because you're you're waiting for the other shoe to drop the whole time. Um, if this were like a standalone that had just been written and like not in the course of a series, I think that would be a bigger issue. But I actually kind of like that because we know he's going to get there eventually. Yeah, he just gets there very late. So yeah, there yeah. Th- that actually adds uh, quite a bit of tension to it. Yeah, it totally does. This episode is brought to you by Best Fiends. Okay, so you may have heard us talk about this game before, or maybe there are other people in your life who've been playing it and talking it up, because there is no denying that Best Fiends is a hit. You solve puzzles on your screen that get increasingly harder the longer you play, but you know what it doesn't change about those puzzles? The fact that they are bright and colorful and fun and approachable. I find myself playing Best Fiends when I need to unwind a little, which these days is, let's be honest, a bit more often than in normal times. Right. And, you know, you get to sort of travel through individual lands and you get like a desert landscape and, you know, or a forest landscape in the background while you're having to defeat the various creatures, the slugs and the levels. And, you know, I have to say, Gemper, given that I don't really have a change of scenery and haven't had one in a long time, um, I really like the changes of scenery in this game. Absolutely. That is much appreciated on my part as well. So engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters. Trust me, with over 100 million downloads, this five-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. I think we're ready to mosey on over to our next labor of Hercules. What do we have up next, Catherine? The Cretan Ball. It was first published in the U.S. in September of 1939 in the week under the title Midnight Madness. Then in May 1940 in the Strand in the U.K. Then, as we have previously said, you know, these were collected in the U.S. and Labors of Hercules in 1947 by Dodd Mead, later the same year by Collins Crime. Well, let's talk a little bit about our victims because there are two. The first, well, there are, the there first. are more than two, Kemper. Well, I was going to say the first is really more of a category. Yes, um, let's, let's it's like a, it's give a, them their due. Yeah, no, it's a collective. The first victim is a whole bunch of sheep, and we're not speaking metaphorically there. We do mean literal sheep. I know because these poor sheep in this story have their throat slit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's upsetting. Very upsetting. And then we have uh, Diana Maberly, who's, um, she's upper middle class. She's pretty. She's smart. She's young. But her handbag and her weathered tweeds uh, let us and let Poirot know that she's probably a bit short on money. She is the victim because she's going to lose her fiance. And that's why she's the one who ends up coming to Poirot because she's being dumped. And it's funny, too, because when she does go to Poirot, this is something that I underlined uh, in my book, Poirot says to her when he finds out that, you know, she had been engaged and she's very upset that she's not engaged anymore. He says, it is certainly not my métier in life to patch up the lover's quarrels. And I underlined it and wrote in the margin, it's not? Really? It's like, <laughs> um, like yes, it is. You know, Poirot, you can tell yourself that, but 
That is not what you do practically. Yeah, that is, in fact, your métier, mon ami. Come on. (laughs) I mean, I do think it's really funny that Papa Poirot doesn't realize that he's doing it. Self-awareness is not necessarily Poirot's strong suit, is it? No. No, it's not. (laughs) So who are the suspects, Kemper? First up, we've got Hugo Chandler, who is the formerly affianced of Diana Maberly. And he is strapping and talented and handsome and tawny haired. Just definitely one of those moments when he appears where, you know, you know, it's a hubba hubba. Oh, he's he's broad shoulders. He was in the Navy. I don't think that she mentions his slim hips, but she may as well have. I mean, you gather you, definitely, you gather it by his broad shoulders and like nice build. I don't think we've seen a man this well proportioned since child murderer Anthony Marsden in <laughs> And Then There Were None. And that is not a spoiler, people, because that is part of the premise of the novel. Yeah. So Hugo Chandler is a Navy man, you know, again, just had been fabulously handsome and talented and successful, but uh, not so much recently because apparently he's going mad. And that is why he broke off his engagement to Diana Maberly. Who do we have next, Catherine? We have Admiral Chandler, who's Hugo's handsome, incredibly wealthy, incredibly well-respected father. And then we have Colonel Frobisher, who is Admiral Chandler's best friend. He's kind of mousy and and ginger, and he also was the childhood best friend of Admiral Chandler's now deceased wife. So these two have known each other for a long time, and he, in fact, seems to have been perhaps a bit of a uh, fifth wheel, if you will, to this couple. Catherine Brobeck, we've already gone through the victim and the suspects. I'm just realizing now, I don't know, I'm off my game. Uh, I know, I had, today, to re- I had to remind you in the first one, Kemper. And so, I know. So now, are you going to regale us with a story? I am. I promise I'm, I'm always so excited to delve into the Dolores. I mean, I have to say, I, I was, I was a little me. bit distracted by all of the sheep with their slit throats. So... <laughs> Then Eurystheus sent Heracles south to catch a fierce, fire-breathing bull on the island of Crete. The Cretans, who were great bullfighters, could not catch the bull, but Heracles seized the charging bull by the horns without heeding the flames from its nostrils, flung it to the ground, and returned to Mycenae, bringing the subdued beast. Eurystheus was glad he had a safe urn to hide in. That's all. I, by the way, listeners, spent a full week on the island of Crete once. I'll have you know. It was quite lovely. That sounds very nice. I'm I'm jealous. Yeah. I'm jealous for that past version of myself that was so blithe and blasé about the miracle that was international travel. I know. Um, but <laughs> you know, one day again, my friend. One day. Yeah. All right. Tell us about the world as it appears to be in the Cretan Bowl. Diana Maverly shows up at Poirot's flat and she's desperately begging for his assistance, even though she knows it's going to sound really tremendously stupid to him. Because you see, she, as we said, was engaged to the love of her life, her childhood neighbor at that, Hugo, who she adores and who she knows adores her, except he's ended the engagement. And he told her to essentially leave him alone, never speak to him again, and go on and live her life. Very abruptly, and not just ending it, but like cutting ties with her. It's all extremely dramatic. Right. And, you know, I mean, the tragedy of it is when she's pressed a little bit, 
by Poirot, it seems that he thinks he's going mad. And he seems to believe that he murdered an entire field of neighboring sheep. Diana is just bewildered. And she tells all this to Poirot and says she doesn't believe it. And she can't figure out what's going on. Something is wrong. She doesn't really believe he's crazy. He's never seemed crazy. And Poirot, instead of being like, you just go deal with this yourself, he's like, Okay, you know what? Like, at the bare minimum, I'll come down there, give this a day of observation. And when he does go down there, the section opens up on Poirot just taking in the magnificence of Hugh Chandler's physique. I, I just, I just have to pull it out here. Tall, magnificently proportioned, with a terrific chest and shoulders, and a tawny head of hair. There was a tremendous air of strength and virility about him. And then, you know, because we know what Christie is doing here, since this is the Cretan Bowl, that is the title of our story, a little later on, Poirot murmurs, yes, he is magnificent, magnificent. He is the young bull. Yes, one might say, the bull dedicated to Poseidon, a perfect spell specimen of healthy manhood. So we got our Cretan bull. Yes, we do. And we have some weird relatives. I mean, first of all, the magnificent Hugh is a weird relative since he's obviously super nervous and distressed, just like in a in a terrible mm-hmm. mental state. And then Admiral Chandler, who, you know, also is a rather handsome specimen, although obviously a generation older, seems distressed about his son, but insists that there's nothing to do. Well, and they refuse Um, to go to the doctor. That's like another weird thing about them. Absolutely. Yeah. Both Hugh and his father refuse to go to a doctor. Um, In Admiral Chandler's case, it's because he firmly does not believe in them. He just thinks that doctors are rubbish. And in Hugo's case, it's because he's a beast of a man, right? He is our titular bull, and he does not want to be locked up when he might live, you know, into extremely old age with his magnificent constitution. That would just be, you know, miserable. He could be staring down decades of misery here. So we get the sense early on, this is a story like so many of Christie's stories, actually, that is suffused with the threat of suicide. Right. And it will remain to be seen if that threat is acted upon by the end of the story. We have a third member of this little gathering that Poirot comes in on when he first arrives at Lyde Manor. Who would that be, Catherine? Yeah, it's Colonel Frobisher. He is a sort of like small, less uh, marquee specimen of a man. Um, he he tends to lean forward very heavily. He's a ginger. You know, he looks a bit older than the Admiral. He really spent a long time in India, of course, because we know our Indian colonels from Christie. And, um, you know, he feels terrible about all of this. And um, he is actually sort of sympathetic to Poirot being there. And so he removes Poirot from this terrible, awkward terrace luncheon and brings him on a tour, especially because he wants Poirot to see the portrait of his beloved childhood friend, who is the late Mrs. Chandler. You know, the Admiral's his best friend, but Mrs. Chandler was his childhood best friend. And there's a giant portrait of her in the portrait gallery. And she is this striking tall woman with auburn hair and strong features and beautiful. And she died on this boat trip off the coast of Cornwall with the Admiral desperately trying to keep them both afloat until she finally drowned. 
Yes. And I'd also like to pull out the physical description of Colonel Frobisher because we often harp, perhaps unfairly, on the fact that physical descriptions are not Christie's forte, (laughs) so to speak, when it comes to physical descriptions of people. But this is a rare story where it actually is key. And what she writes about Colonel Frobisher is... A dried-up, tough little man with reddish hair turning gray at the temples. A restless, irascible, snappy little man, rather like a terrier, but the possessor of a pair of extremely shrewd eyes. He had a habit of drawing down his brows over his eyes and lowering his head, thrusting it forward whilst those same shrewd little eyes studied you piercingly. Hmm. Lowering your head and thrusting it forward almost sounds like something a bull would do. Mm, Maybe a little bit, huh? Just pointing that out. All right. So after Poirot gets this backstory, this tragic backstory about the Admiral and Mrs. Chandler, he then has a little tete-a-tete with uh, Hugh Chandler himself. And Hugh tells Poirot that he knows why he's down here. Nothing good can come of this. He's totally crazy. There were bloody clothes on the floor of his room after those horrific sheep murders. And he has intense hydrophobia at this point as he describes it to Poirot. You know, he desperately wants to drink water water, but he can't because of his hydrophobia, presumably. So that's extremely uncomfortable and upsetting. And he also has hallucinations. At one point, he fancies that he sees a skeleton behind Poirot, and he just refuses to put any of this on his beloved Diana. He, you know, has released her and wants her to go live a better life somewhere else with someone else. Poirot, by the way, also uh, at one point during this conversation asks Hugh if anyone in the house suffers from eye trouble. And Hugh tells him that his father does. More on that later. What happens next, Catherine? Diana and Poirot convene, and they agree that they're going to spend the night at Lyde Manor whether or not anyone else likes it. Diana will lock her door, just in case. But Poirot wants to be there during the night because he really does feel like something is up there. And everybody fights them on this. They think it's just complete madness for Diana and Poro to be in the house at night. But Poro gets his way always. So in the middle of the night, there's a commotion, as we would expect at this point. So Hugh is found in the hall, passed out, outside of Diana's door. He has a bloody knife in his hand. There are claw marks on her door, knife cuts on her door, scratches, basically. And um, there's a dead cat downstairs. It seems like Hugh, in a fit of madness, killed a house cat downstairs and then crawled to Diana's room and clawed at it with a knife to try to get in and kill her. And uh, totally distraught, Hugh suddenly becomes conscious and this is explained to him and he sort of bolts downstairs to like the gun room because, of course, why not uh, leave that open when you have a crazy person in the house? Sure. Yeah, it's now dawn at this point. It's early morning, and he's going to go out to go rabbit hunting. Yes, we're using air quotes there around rabbit hunting. We all know what he is about to do again, the threat of suicide hanging heavily over this story. And I suppose we should have put that poor cat on our victim list as the third victim, in fact. But that would have been spoiling things. Right. Um, Poor cat. All right, well... It's time for our clues here, and our big clue, I'm just going to call myself out here, is basically just an opportunity for me to brag. I'd like to brag for a moment at my newfound prowess when it comes to poisons, which is uh, a direct result of the close, sustained reading of Christie texts that we have done in the course of this very podcast, listeners, because when I was reading the story and Poirot asked Hugh 
out of the blue, if anyone suffered from eye trouble, what did I put in my margin with my trusty little pen? Oh, yes, that's right. I put atropine, comma, esserine. Because I knew that that meant that just from that question that there was going to have to be some key role played by one of those two poisons since in the thumb mark of St. Peter, a Miss Marble short story, fast forward, if you do not want that spoiled, we had the poison of atropine, which was contained in eye drops. And in that case, it was a poison that a father used against his own son. He, in fact, murdered his son in that story, but that's interesting. And then we also came across Esserine, which is a related poison to atropine and which appeared in eye drops in Crooked House. I don't have to go any further than that. If you've read Crooked House, you will know uh, how that happened. And otherwise, please go read Crooked House. What are you doing? It's one of the best Christie novels ever. So <laughs> the deduction here is that somehow atropine or esserine has to be key in the committing of the crime. And given that Hugh told Poirot that his father is the one who had eye trouble. That would mean that atropine is in Admiral Chandler's possession. That doesn't mean that he had to do it. Anyone within this house, I suppose, could have had access. But I was already rather suspicious of Admiral Chandler at that point. I think I could practically hear Catherine rolling her eyes throughout that Rolling, rolling my incredibly dilated eyes. <laughs> your, your incredibly atropine saturated. My incredibly, my incredibly dilated eyes because we'll get there in a second, but. I also have another clue. Oh. Another on the fly clue sort of, but you know, I went to great pains to pull out that description of Colonel Frobisher in which he's described as making gestures that are rather bull-like. Chrissy doesn't stop there, though, because she really does play fair. And she does uh, mention in the course of the story that Hugh himself makes a similar gesture. So if we are reading closely here between the lines, let's just think back to that tragic little backstory. Christy has certainly dealt in love triangles before. Perhaps there was a little love triangle going on here among Admiral Chandler and his wife and Colonel Frobisher, these childhood best friends. I'm thinking Five Little Pigs. I'm thinking so many countless other Christy novels. We should just keep that in mind as we get into the world as it actually is. So Hugh's bewildered as to why Poirot would stop him because clearly he's a monster and he needs to go off himself. And Poirot does stop him by putting his hand on his arm before he tries to go out the door. And Poirot says, don't do this because you're not crazy. You're being poisoned. And Hugh is even more bewildered because keep in mind, he's woken up in a pool of blood He sees hallucinations. He had a knife in his hand and he can't figure out what Poirot is talking about. But um, Poirot basically informs him that, you know, you're being poisoned through, of all things, your shaving cream, (laughs) which... We should note earlier, Poirot really snoops amongst his stuff for a while, and then they make a little trip into the village. It's not spelled out what goes on here, but it's pretty much assumed that he takes samples from what are amongst Hugh's belongings and brings them to the Mm -hmm. town chemist. But um, his shaving cream was laced with atropine sulfate, and so there had been stories before about Colonel Frobisher's time in India and poisonings by Datura, but that's not what's used here. 
Poirot sort of reasons that a similar poison would be made from belladonna. So, of course, belladonna is used historically in like stuff like women's cosmetics from ancient times to widen the pupils. And that's why it's used in eye drops, right? So that's why the atropine comes in eye drops. It has a dilation effect. This is used to poison his shaving cream. So every time he nicks himself with his razor, the poison is essentially just increasingly absorbing through his face. And it is noted that he has a lot of little nicks. Yeah, he's he's apparently not a great shaver. It's an example of Christie's great sleight of hand or obfuscation, even in a short story like this, because it's she's describing it in the course of of telling us what a mess he is. Or it's like his, you know, obviously it would seem his hand is shaking when he's shaving and like it doesn't seem important other than as a yet another indicator of his mental state. But it turns out to be crucial to solving the right. mystery. So he's nicked himself all about his face. And every time he does, more and more of this poison, which is already seeping through his skin just by the shaving cream, is now being doubly absorbed, I guess, through the wounds. And, you know, the side effects are also causing hallucinations and dry mouth. There's something so awful about the idea of being poisoned through your shaving cream and cuts in your face. There's an icky sort of intimacy to that. And the only reason I mention it is because I'm fairly sure that we haven't come across this since one of the murders in Cards on the Table, actually. And I won't say anything more than that, but we had a murder via shaving in that novel as well. And I remember how uncomfortable it made me feel. (laughs) And I felt the same way again here. Just like, Well, I feel that way a little bit about the eye drops because as somebody who had contacts when I was like in fourth grade or something and you're very used to putting stuff in your eyes Mm -hmm. that spooks me yeah so why is poor Hugh being poisoned by way of his shaving cream well because he is not a member of the Chandler family. And throughout this story, adding to Hugh's certainty that he's going crazy is the fact that madness is supposed to run in the Chandler family. And Admiral Chandler makes a lot of this. Hugh makes a lot of this. Poirot seems skeptical at best about, you know, the notion of inherited madness. It's ultimately irrelevant as to Hugh, whether or not madness runs in the Chandler family, because he is not a member of the Chandler family. He is, in fact, the biological child of Mrs. Chandler and Colonel Frobisher. And that's where Christie's clever kind of layering in there of that gesture that they both make, despite the fact that Colonel Frobisher looks nothing like his biological son. They have that similar gesture. So that's her clue there, which is clever. And, um, well, and they're you both, both kind of gingers. And they're both gingered. I mean, we are told that Mrs. Right. Chandler had auburn yeah. hair, but yes, he has tawny hair and Colonel Frobisher is a ginger. So that is a slight resemblance as well. It's all very clever. I mean, sometimes I think we fault Christy for not being able to clue as cleverly in a short story because you just don't have as much mass to hide it on as she does in a novel and she's so clever about slotting it into her novels but let's give her credit here because i think those clues are not obvious in this short story right i appreciated that but yeah you know admiral chandler one could argue is totally insane so i suppose he in fact is the one who has inherited the family madness so perhaps by the end of the story that notion of inherited madness is very much embraced yes (laughs) right because what we found out is that admiral chandler has lost the plot Totally. 
Indeed. And and probably he lost the plot some time ago because it seems pretty clear that he probably killed his wife. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's, you know, the backstory as to this tragic drowning. You know, it seems clear that he killed his wife because of the fact that she had this affair. And then he's just been slowly plotting this revenge on, you know, this man who he raised as his son. And it's not enough that he, you know, he doesn't want to kill him. He wants to drive this poor man to suicide. Right. And it's crazy. And it's crazy because Hugh loves his father and has no clue that Admiral Chandler is anything besides his father. So it makes it even worse. Oh, yeah. No, it's it's pretty awful. And this is where you know, sometimes we have these abrupt endings in the short stories, right? Because a more traditional, judicially <laughs> solvent, shall we say, ending would take too long. So how does this all get wrapped up, Catherine? Well, Poirot gives his usual big explainer while everyone's standing there. Again, surrounded by guns, because that seems safe. And while he's explaining all of this, Admiral Chandler sort of disappears to go wabbit hunting, to quote (laughs) Elmer Fudd. They kind of look for him. They wait a beat, and Poirot stops Colonel Frobisher from going outside. Then they hear a gunshot. The end. Yeah, and I mean, Hugh is conveniently off stage. Yeah, he's gone with Diana at that point. He and Diana are just like, Hugh, Diana, and the the lovers are reunited. So yeah, Poirot pulls one of his, I'm just going to go ahead and uh, let you kill yourself moves, which he absolutely does do from time to time. He does. Despite his Catholic origins. Then that is the end of the story. The Admiral is no longer, and uh, I suppose Colonel Frobisher and Hugh Chandler have some catching up to do, but the Cretan book has been tamed. Indeed. I mean, it's kind of a weird story. I don't don't dislike it, but it's a little bit of an oddball story. I agree. I mean, it's funny. It actually has a lot of commonalities with the Le Miserier inheritance. Mm, Yeah. Spoiler here, in case you haven't read that story yet, but, you know, that one is very much about inherited madness in a family and also hinges on the notion of the biological son of this family not actually being biologically related after all. So it's stuff that she's done before. We, you know, we've talked about how good this collection is overall. And I still think this is a perfectly good Christie short story oh, or even right. short story. I mean, story. I, I don't think there's anything wrong with reading this at all. I mean, it was perfectly enjoyable to read. It's just like a little bit of an oddball thing going on here. It's a little bit of an oddball and it's and, and it's funny and it's rather convenient for purposes of summarizing, you know, where we are in the collection as a whole right now when it comes to the labors of Hercules, because I think the two stories that I would give slight check minuses to are the Cretan bull and the Aramanthian boar, the bull and the boar. Like it's very easy to remember that. And the rest of them in particular, the Nemean lion and the Augean stables, but even all the others that we've covered thus far, like including the Stymphalian birds, which I quite enjoyed have been fantastic. So this is just slightly less than fantastic, but still worth reading and perfectly enjoyable. Right. I agree. And it's funny because as we said in the previous story, Poirot is very much not in it. 
In the Stimphalian right. birds. Yeah. And he is very much in this story. Mm-hmm. But this is a little bit more of a ho-hum Poirot short story. And uh, it pains me to say that because there really is nothing ho-hum about a Poirot short story. They're all a delight. But again, it's the superlative company that it keeps within this collection that I think just gives it a little bit of a relative right. demerit. Right. Um, Agree. But not I so Totally so. agreed. I mean, I don't think that should detract at all from the appeal of this collection in general, which I think, you know, as we've been going on has been just great. Absolutely. Well, that is the Stymphalian birds and the Cretan bull. We are making our way through that collection a little too quickly for, for my taste because I really would like to just wallow in it, marinate in it as long as possible. But we will not be covering the labors of Hercules next time. We will, in fact, be covering a novel. And happy day. It is a Poirot novel. What are we covering, Catherine? Oh, we are covering Dead Man's Folly. And Kemper, do you know what? I accidentally have two copies of this. Ooh. That is not some bias on my part. It's just totally random circumstances that I have two 1970s copies of Dead Man's Folly. Lots of fun to be had with that one. Cannot wait for it. And we would love to hear from you in the meantime, as we always do. You can check out our bonus content over on our Patreon site, which is at www.patreon.com slash allaboutagatha. You can email us at allaboutthedamagemail.com. Our Facebook page is allaboutagatha. Our Instagram handle is at allaboutagatha. And we are on Twitter at allaboutthedame. Catherine is on Twitter at Robcat. And we would so appreciate more ratings and reviews a number of you have given us quite a few of them recently, but we could always use more and reach more people that way. So please take a moment if you haven't already, and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio.